Hello, and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue, where we ask a different cartoonist the same ten questions with each installment. My name is Greg Hunter, recording from a Comics Journal Satellite Lab in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dylan Horrocks is our guest this time around. Dylan, of course, is the creator of Hicksville and a native of New Zealand. We spoke during his last trip to the U.S. just before the release of Incomplete Works, which is now available. Incomplete Works collects short pieces of Dylan's from across the last three decades, and it's a book of real range and intimacy. These are comics that put fully on display the thoughtfulness you'll hear a little of throughout this interview. Now, this is an exercised episode in time for holiday travel, but really, that's just because Dylan was so generous with the gift of his time a few months ago. So, naturally, you can hear people playing ping pong in the background at a certain point. This is what happens when you record one wall away from a marketing startup. It does go away. If you write it out, you'll be glad you did. With that said, I want to hop right into this one. Once again, here's 10 questions with a very game, Don Horrocks. Thank you for... Hold on. Are those... Sleigh bells? Could that be... Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Oh my goodness, it's Santa Claus. What brings you to the satellite lab? Oh, just stopping by for a holiday visit. But you know, Greg, I haven't heard what you'd like for Christmas this year. Well, sir, I do have a podcast, and that's really everything a boy could want. Ho, ho, ho! Very well. Since you're here, I've got to mention, you don't look anything like the way you're drawn in that Grant Morrison Santa project. The one from Boom Studios? It's very much the classic Coke ad incarnation I'm seeing. Oh, oh, and you're right, you're right. I've got to admit, they nailed it. That Santa project gives me pause, by the way. I actually have a real weakness for Morrison, but there it's like, here's my holiday movie pitch. Yes, agreed. I think people have been too hard on Grant Morrison lately, though. You take We Three and Flex Pentalo alone, and that guy's a Hall of Famer. And you know what? I even prefer Zenith to Paradax. The Milligan-McCarthy comic? Oh, 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 that's right. The way people write about Morrison these days, I say, judge the work, not the persona. I hear that. Though Super Gods did sort of blur the line a bit. Oh, oh, agreed. The combination of personal narrative and long-form essay might have worked in theory, but... What do you make of the heavy metal editorship? Now, that does seem like a stunt, doesn't it? How many issues of that do you think we'll really see? And for me, heavy metal without Mobius, is that really heavy metal? I wish them the best, of course. I'm Santa Claus, after all. Well, you really know your comics, don't you? Well, I've been around a long time. From Rodolph Topher through the black and white boom, I used to say. I was handing out a lot of cd 80s genre comics at Christmas for a while there. Dang, so you would have been around for the start of Love and Rockets, too. Oh, 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 for sure. Jaime, Gilbert, Dan Klaus, all of that stuff. Great, great. Peter Bag, I never really got. I used to wonder if it was the libertarian bit. I'm a common sense progressive myself. Red suit, blue dog, I like to say. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But really, with Bag, it's the line work. Too rubbery. I get that. You know, between the Hernandez brothers, I've loved Jaime's comics for years, but it's only in the last couple years that Gilbert's work, like, really clicked with me. Well, let me ask you, did you begin with the Palomar stuff? 
See, this is the thing. I read the Locust comics chronologically from the first pieces up till the present, and I was enthralled with it. But that meant I was then encountering Gilbert stuff in the pages of Love and Rockets news stories where there's decades, literally decades of earlier stories informing it. When I went back and started at Palomar, it was way more satisfying. Oh, 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 never hurts to start at the beginning. That's what I say. So what were the 90s like for you? There were some pretty intense booms and busts happening in those years. Oh, 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 you're telling me. I remember when X-Force number one came out, we couldn't make them fast enough up at the North Pole. Uh Uh-huh. Wait, what what do you mean, make them? Oh, Oh, I had the elves draw them, of course, and colored each one. Yeah, but I mean, do you mean like forging them? Well, now, that's a little uncharitable. Okay, but you weren't getting them from Marvel. You were, like, bootlegging them, copying the drawings? I say we were out spreading Christmas cheer. And that was a Liefeld comic. Don't act like it was an issue of eight ball. Well, that part doesn't matter. Did you forge any issues of eight ball? Maybe once or twice. Santa, that is so messed up. How did people get paid if you were forging their comics? Oh, I'm sorry. Is this for the Comics Journal or The Economist? Are you serious? Come on, now. Hey, everybody loves Copra in there. He's just doing Suicide Squad. Hand-forging comic books is not like Copra. Look, I think we've reached an impasse. Yeah, it's the impasse between ripping people off and not ripping people off. Who are you, Rorschach? Did someone let Mr. A in here? Hey, I have to ask you to please leave, Santa. Oh, oh, I've got a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15 right here. Vintage Ditko if you want it. Yeah, it probably carbon dates to 2014. Goodbye. Oh, 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 maybe next time I'll drop in somewhere else. They aren't so self-righteous over at Newsarama. Um, there you have it. That was Santa Claus. Uh, and up next is 10 Questions with Dylan Horrocks. testing the ideal comics interview we're here with dylan horrocks who has been road tested himself he's traveling the country right now he is weary but he is infused with a curious kind of resolve dylan question number one what (laughs) is the last comic you finished reading i think it's uh it was a collection of nancy strips by ernie bushmiller it was volume two in the fantagraphics collection which I bought on a whim in a comic shop in Hamilton, New Zealand, called Mark One Comics. And um, it was amazing. It was the first time I've really properly sat down and read a chunk of Nancy, mm-hmm. rather than just occasional strips. Um, and it was a revelation. I love it to bits. I am in the middle of reading the first of the Fanographics Bushmiller collections, and the quality of the comics themselves isn't a surprise necessarily, because I know how many Nancy evangelists there are, but... Simply the number of times I find myself actually laughing out loud was, <laughs> was a very pleasant surprise. Yeah, also I, I had a terrible, really bad um, cold at the time. But I, I'd been working very hard and I was travelling quite a bit in, within New Zealand uh, in the week leading up to that, and, which is why I bought it in Hamilton, which is not my hometown. Um, and I got home from that trip and just 
basically went to bed for about three days. Mm-hmm. And I, I read nothing but comics half that time. I read um, the Nancy collection. I read a wonderful Buzz Sawyer collection by Roy Crane. And some old, um, wonderful old comics that a friend in Dunedin had sent me, uh, including English children's comics, English girls, schoolgirl huh. comics, basically, from the 1960s, I guess they were. And um, it was uh, it was like comfort reading. It was it was just the perfect thing when I felt quite seasick. Were there any strips in that Nancy collection that served for you as someone from New Zealand as a window into American culture at that point <laughs> in history? That's a, that's an interesting question. It um, it's funny because Nancy feels like it uh, it takes place in a strange imaginary world in a way. Um, everything's so everything's drawn so cleanly mm-hmm. and um, and perfectly. All the lines are precise. And actually, you know, that's something that I'm really drawn to in a lot of comics from that era. And a lot of my favourite uh, DC or Marvel comics come from the 50s and 60s. And one of the things I love is how clean and elegant the drawing is. Mm-hmm. People like Kurt Schaffenberger and Kurt Swan, uh, and they, and even actually the Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby in the sixties developed this very very clean look to the urban landscapes he was drawing. Mm-hmm. Lots of sharp edges and smooth lines, and all the apartments kind of had the same lamp uh-huh. and the same chair, but nothing was shabby. Everything felt new and clean, and I always feel like that's. To me, that's what I associate with America in the 1950s and the early 60s, is that that mm-hmm. vision, that, that fantasy of a country where everything's new and clean and tidy and kind of relentlessly middle class. Sure. And, um, and I think the, the ripples from the space race to everything aspiring to be a kind of space age version of itself yeah I mean the funny thing is though when like that's the impression I have but when I really look closely reading um, the Nancy strips and so on Nancy it surprised me how um, working class a lot of it is and that there is a kind of a a slightly gritty edge to some of those strips and I found that really interesting I mean Sluggo has a whole kind of he's the oh sure yeah, he's definitely the working class kid. And I think there's even a... I seem to remember a couple of strips where he's at home and his it was like reading a, a Kaz strip, huh. a strip by Kaz. So there, there's, 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 there's all kinds of little nuances and shadows that you start to see when you look more closely mm-hmm. at, at those cultural products of the time. And, and if you watch film noir, you know, you get... It's great because we're sitting in a <laughs> we're sitting in the back room of a gorgeous micro cinema right now, and there's all these posters for movies from the 40s and 50s and 60s, and um, it reminds me how the film noir and the horror films and so on from that time, there are real shadows there, and there's um, there are dirty streets. You know, it's, yeah, closer you look, the more complicated mm-hmm. it always gets. I don't know if this extends into the second Nancy volume or not, but one of the strange things about the first collection is that it takes place during wartime. Oh. So you will see again and again Bushmiller making these 
four panel gag strips out of you know war rations and right. you know Nancy planting a victory garden right. and all these strange things that yeah I think I think the second volume must have been after the war um, which was the the fun thing about uh, reading Buzz Sawyer because it was volume two of Buzz Sawyer I was reading as well and um, of course the first volume of Buzz Sawyer is during the war Mm-hmm. and he's an, a Navy pilot, and it's all about the adventures and scrapes of wartime as an action hero. And the, the beginning of the second volume is all about him coming home after the war, and in the first sequence he goes back to his family, and he dreams of just lying in the hammock for the rest of his life, you know, doing huh. nothing. And... Within by the end of, of that strip, he's you know after three panels, he's like, oh, I'm so restless and bored. I have to do something. <laughs> and but for for a good chunk of that volume, he's um, he's trying to find a job. Uh, That's fun. I was going to make a joke about the strips delving into the finer points of the GI Bill, but it totally does. Well, it kind of doesn't because he doesn't he doesn't go back to college or anything. But he mm-hmm. but he yeah he's looking for a job, and it's interesting how how much it reflects what so many people would have been dealing with at the time all mm-hmm. the upheavals of post-war America and I, you know I, I, it's funny because I just finished doing this book exploring the way comics um, the way comics use kind of fantasy worlds and, and wish fulfillment fantasies that are kind of detached from the real world and it was fun to be reading these adventure comics and gag panel comics and so on, but seeing how much they were engaged with the world around them at the time. Yeah, sometimes you can't get away from it. Yeah. (laughs) Our our second question is, what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise? Well, I guess there are so many. Um, And there are some great cartoonists who are just very obscure. There's a wonderful New Zealand cartoonist called Barry Linton. whose work I've followed since the 1970s when I was a kid. But for the last 20 years, um, he's just quietly worked in his room on his comics, Hmm. and they haven't been published. And so... Really? Yeah, the only way to see them was to go and visit him. And they were beautiful. You know, they were among the most beautiful comics being drawn in anywhere. Uh, Recently, he has finally started getting published, and um, there's a great publisher called Pikitia Press based in Australia but run by a New Zealander and he's published a few collections now of Barry's work uh, and so so actually he is starting to get the attention that he mm-hmm. deserves but I feel you know uh, this is something I'm quite often saying I actually think that one of the more undervalued cartoonists of the last 30 years is Dave Sun and I think he's undervalued for a number of reasons I don't want to make the reader or the listeners think they've they've missed out on something but last <laughs> night at your book reading we talked briefly about the art you love most that doesn't square with your personal politics yeah. i think that you know opinions vary on on whether dave sim has been justifiably excommunicated or if that is that is a, a travesty irrespective of his politics and his character but yeah i mean if anyone doesn't know dave sim because his work hasn't been that visible for a while he did a comic called Cerebus, the Aardvark, uh, which he began in 1977, I think, and it lasted about 30 years as a monthly comic. And he 
completely just a solo job for a long time, just him. And then he took on an artist called Gerhard, who drew the backgrounds, and which was an enormous job, and Gerhard did extraordinary work on that. And he just carried on. He always said he was going to do 300 issues, and he did. He did 300 issues, and the whole thing forms this extraordinary, incredibly long, strange kind of epic saga. I mean, I think Dave's, in, in the later years, Dave kind of developed a, a very strange, unique, and frankly disturbing kind of philosophy and mm -hmm. ideology. And and at the heart of it is, is a kind of a deep, I think, I mean, he rejects the term misogyny. He, he doesn't see himself as a misogynist, and at various times he's He's really forcefully insisted that he's not, but but his view of the world is clearly misogynist. Yes, he, he sees women as a void that that um, that suck out the creativity and uh, so on of, of men. And he, he um, in later years has occasionally talked about a kind of um, feminist homosexualist alliance, kind of trying to emasculate the world. And uh, you know, it's it's. It's horrible and it's kind of um, crazy too. I mean, the, the, yeah, it's, there's been a lot of um, ink spilled and, and pixels flashed about Dave Sims' political views, and he's certainly been very open about them. Mm -hmm. In the last several years of service, there were he would write essays on the back of the comic. There were raging arguments in the letters section, and so on. He lost a lot of friends. He actively cut off a lot of friends at various times you know I think I think um, it's it's probably fair to say that Dave developed personal issues and that his political views are intimately interwoven with those personal issues and I think that's one reason that he's been he's been um, his work has been kind of not given the attention it deserves in the last several years and that's probably just an inevitable consequence of him going off the deep end in a slightly kind of Ditko-esque uh, mm -hmm. way but uh, there is another reason too which for a long time did hold him back which is that the first kind of, because what he did is he published these this series issue by issue and then as he went he also collected them he started collecting them at a certain point in what we used to call trades mm -hmm. or graphic novels. And he has now collected the whole series and as a series of these um, graphic novels. And the nickname people started using for them was phone books because yes. that's what they looked like. They were so thick. You know, there were hundreds of pages printed on newsprint, um, softback books, and about the same size as a phone book. And the, the, the biggest problem I think he faced for a long time is that the first volume seems silly. and It was an outright sword and sorcery parody in its first yeah. issues. It, the, the, it opens basically just as a, a kind of a very obvious parody of Conan the Barbarian. It's Cerebus the Aardvark instead of Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. In fact, the first cover, I think, is, is just a redrawing of a... Barry Windsor Smith Conan 
illustration, or certainly a you know a very familiar image of Kane, but on the horse is an aardvark, and mm-hmm. so the whole thing just looks silly. And um, as it went along, he started adding more and more um, characters, and the situations became increasingly complex, and also his drawing became a lot more competent and confident. And I would say by issue. You know, by the end of the first year, it was already turning into something really quite special. Still basically a satirical humour comic, but very smart. I mean, he introduced a character called Lord Julius, who was an aristocrat, and he was grappling with Marx. Mm-hmm. And that's another, that's the third thing that I think makes it very difficult for his comics to get the attention they deserve. And that's that they are so thick and dense with allusions and references and he borrows characters and you know he would dedicate a few issues to a parody of um, Moon Knight the, the uh, Marvel comic is it Marvel? Moon yeah Knight? yes yes I'm just I'm not a superior guy but when Frank Miller was making big waves with Daredevil and so on he did a whole sort of four issue arc that was a direct parody of Frank Miller's Wolverine miniseries, you know, and, and then he had a Sandman one, and, and there were characters in there who were various Marx Brothers, um, there were other comedians, I think, um, does Orson Welles make an appearance? There's a character based on Oscar Wilde, they're, they're, it's it's difficult to get, to get all the kind of references and nuances unless you're deeply steeped in comic book culture of the 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. 90s and also popular culture in general and history of cinema and so on. But he's a very, very smart guy. So in addition to all that, he was also referencing the history of American literature, a lot of history and politics. Uh, he, he really got into his stride, I think, in the second or third volumes. Um, there's a sequence called high society where the character Cerebus finds his way to um, a city and becomes involved in the politics of the city and it's very complex and smart and funny uh, and there's some some really sophisticated political commentary about how politics works and high, the, the sequence after that was church and state and by that point it was clear that this guy was one of the geniuses of comics at the time. Mm-hmm. And along the way, he he plays with the form to an extent that few people were doing. Uh, he would, he would um, turn the whole comic on its side in the middle of a sequence. But in the process, you know, there'd be a two-page sequence in which the character was drunk, was staggering around, unable to keep his feet. And the panels would be sort of swinging this way and that and and turning upside down and going in a spiral and as you read that you have to turn the comic around in your hands and at the end of the sequence you realise you're now reading the comic on its side Mm -hmm. and that continues for the next ten pages and then it reverts at a certain point there are, he does extraordinary things with lettering, I don't think I can't think of any other letterer in the whole history of comics who has played with the visual aspect of lettering, even Chris Weir, you know, I think some, there's, there are many, many 
sequences from Cerebus that I use when I teach because he experiments with the form relentlessly, intelligently, and very effectively. And, and it's never purely for the sake of experimentation. It's always deployed to strengthen the storytelling. It's really, it, it is a masterpiece. I can't stress enough that as a whole, Cerebus is one of the great masterpieces of comics. And I feel like every serious cartoonist, if they really want to explore the potential of the medium, of the form, they, they really should read it. But it also... They should, at the very least, they should read uh, High Society, Church and State, and uh, Jaka's story, and um, a few of the other volumes around that period. But he remained experimental and intelligent about it the whole way through, right to the end, even though his worldview was becoming increasingly, let's say, unusual uh, and somewhat repugnant. All through that, he was consistently a fascinating cartoonist and consistently intelligent. And the other, the other thing that I think is really important to stress is that when I think back to High Society, Church and State, Jaka's story particularly, Rick's story, there's a very, very deep humanity to his story. And one of the reasons I find his drift into a kind of weird men's rights kind of misogynist view of the world so bizarre I find that so strange is that his earlier comics and even quite late in the piece the women are the most compelling sympathetic intelligent complex and often decent characters in the story and so you know I don't know quite what that process was in his mind that led him to that position because as an artist as an artist, he was far more decent than as a polemicist. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the sad things about the series is that towards the end, the polemic does become more of a feature of the storytelling. But there's, but you know, I feel like when you grapple with an artist's work, especially a piece of work that takes them nearly 30 years to complete and, and takes so much out of them and is so personal, um, you have to accept that 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 can be a journey sometimes into a mind that that goes to some dark places, and um, and that's what you get with Cerebus. But I, I I hope that at some point it will be, <coughs> you know, it will get the recognition I think it deserves. And I I I think we're all a bit I think we're all grown up enough, aren't we, to <laughs> to do that, to give it that attention at the same time as accepting that his views became repugnant. I don't, I don't see there's any problem with doing both those things simultaneously. Let me turn this conversation on its side now. Our third <coughs> question is, what's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? Oh, now that's a difficult one to answer without. <laughs> I don't know, oh dear. Um, there's a couple, and I, I don't want to um, piss people off. Well, okay, I'll, I'll be as frank as I can. And, well, I will, I'll be completely kind of frank. And, uh, and I apologize to everyone. So the first one is probably uh, Will Eisner's later graphic novels. Um, basically, I, I love the spirit. I was completely 
obsessed with the spirit for some time as a teenager. Uh, studied it very closely. I was very impressed by Contract with God in the 1980s and um, have taught it and talked about it a lot. But the truth is, deep down, something about Will Eisner's later work, pretty much from Contract with God onwards, I, ju I just cannot connect with it. It doesn't. Are you able to articulate what you see in the spirit comics that you don't see? in those later pieces? I don't know, maybe it's Jules Pfeiffer. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, it's, no, I actually, I think it's very personal. I think, I think that it's even, even, I, I don't even connect with the spirit comics quite as deeply as I used to. And I think it's the drawing. Like I, the drawing is part of, the drawing is what really grabs people about the spirit, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a breathtaking virtuoso achievement. It's so stunning and inventive and playful and, beautifully executed and once you, you're drawn into that you get these great stories and fantastic characters and a sly sense of humour and all the rest of it I think the later books the drawing becomes increasingly kind of perfunctionary you know, it's like uh, the spirit was a labour of love and there's such a, a depth of attention paid to the, it's lush, that's what it is that it's, it's lush, I think that's part of what drew me into it is the lushness of the inking and the, the use of black, use of solid black. And there's, there's almost no solid black in his late mm. books. You know? And he opens everything up and it's all very light and sparse and the inking is quite loose and um, there's a lot less solidity to it all. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't think there's... I don't, I don't really have any criticisms of his later books, except possibly one, which is that, which is that the urban landscapes, the clothes, the, uh, the look of the world he was depicting became increasingly archaic. It, it just felt as though he wasn't looking at the world around him anymore. Hmm. He would be setting a story in the 1980s, but it looked like his version of the early 1960s. Um, if he wanted to draw someone who was kind of a a deadbeat, you know, they look like a sort of washed-up hippie from 1968. You know, it was it just I, I just which which is a contrast to I'm going to regret saying everything that I'm saying right now, but it's a contrast to Robert Crumb, who who continues, even though there's a lot of old-fashioned stuff in his drawings, he also continues to look at the world around him and sketch it all the time. Mm -hmm. It's always sketching, and he studies how the world is changing. Um, and Eisner, I think didn't do that beyond a certain point which I think most cartoonists you know we get stuck in a particular period what you're saying to me about composition is interesting in as much as when I first read The Spirit it was a collection of stories that focused uh, mainly on you know one time characters or the supporting cast and the thing I took away from it was that Eisner wants to be writing New Yorker short stories in comics form and because he can't He's going as far as the limitations hmm. of the field allow him. And maybe the feedback, or or I don't know what the best metaphor is, but that that intensified his his desire to be as formally ambitious as he could, yeah. being confined to you know superhero detective stories for as long as he yeah. was. Look, I... I... What it really comes down to, I think, is there's just there's some visceral level on which the way he draws and tells his stories 
um, just doesn't work for me. I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't sort of want to say, I don't want to try and get across that I, I feel like those books were bad or failures or anything like that. I'm, it's, it's simply that I personally, there's something about the way I connect with drawings and with comics that doesn't connect with the way he was drawing. And um, that's not a criticism of him. It's simply that, that my personal taste, which has developed over 50 years of, nearly 50 years of, of engaging with images, it's developed in a way that does not really, you know, they, those drawings don't light up my brain. And I, I think people, people fetishize this idea of whether something's good or bad. And I'm, to me, that's the least interesting thing that one can say about a comic. Is it a good comic or a bad comic? I'm just not interested. What I'm interested in is, is what is interesting about that comic for me. What does it do to me? What is it? What parts of my brain does it light up? And sometimes it's comics I really dislike that light up my brain in hmm. interesting ways. And I'll be thinking about them for years and years and trying to make sense of it. And and then there's other comics that um, that I love, but I don't think about them much, you know? And, I, I, and the thing about Eisner, Eisner is clearly a great figure in comics. He's clearly achieved extraordinary things. He changed the whole landscape of comics um, multiple times and continued to work on personal significant books right till the very end. And I respect that enormously. I mean, I, I met him once in France and, and was absolutely thrilled to give him a copy of one of my books because I just, you know, the guy is a huge figure. It's just that on this very deep personal level, as I've got older, I've, I've moved away from what he did and in my own interests. And it just doesn't, it doesn't affect me. Whereas, you know, I can look at Roy Crane's drawings, even his later, his later comics. Um, and there's just something about the way he draws, hmm. something about, about the way he shapes forms out of line and, and black ink that obsess me, that captivate me. Um, and the story could be nothing. I mean, I'm not saying that Roy Crane is a better cartoonist than Will Eisner. It's just that, that there's, a, there's a weird nerve in my body that gets touched directly by mm. Roy Crane's drawings. Whereas Will Eisner's drawings touched that nerve when I was 16. And these days, when I try and touch that nerve with Will Eisner, it just sort of goes... Mm. You mentioned... <laughs> age 16 and discovering the spirit as a teenager. Our fourth question is, you can send one comic back in time to yourself at 14. Maybe it's a comic from 2015, maybe you just weren't aware of it at that time, but what is that comic book? It's the Moomin comic strip by Tova Janssen. Hmm. And the reason for that is that when I was that age, I was already obsessed with Tova Janssen. But it was because of the novels. Really? And the illustrations in the novels. I had been obsessed with them since I was very, very, very young. Those, I would reread those novels every year through my entire childhood. I still pick them up frequently and reread them. Toby Janssen was and is one of my favourite novelists of all time and also one of my favourite illustrators and has had an enormous impact on my own drawing and my own writing. 
Hicksville, my first book, features a lighthouse very centrally. It's very important to the story. And that lighthouse, I later realized, basically t- was lifted directly from uh, Moomin Papa at Sea, one of her novels. My first unfinished graphic novel, Cafe Underground, which I serialized in my comic series, Pickle, at the center of that is a comet. And one of the first Moomin books I read was Comet over Moomin Valley. Huh. And the way I drew the comet was heavily influenced by Toby Janssen. So she was this giant in my constellation of writers and artists. I had no idea she did comics. And That's amazing. Yeah. And um, when I was, I think when I was about 15 or 16, I was in this high school library, my high school's library, and I found a book about comics, which was a German book that had been translated called Comics, Anatomy of a Mass Medium by, um, I think it's Reitberger and Fuchs. It's funny how those, you know, those first books you find about comics, they're just deeply embedded in your brain ever since. And in that book, they, they mention Toby Janssen, and they mention, they, have, they reproduce a single panel from a Moomin comic strip in Swedish. And I saw that, and I thought, wait, what? She did comics? Holy shit, you know... <laughs> And it was like it was like two of my favourite things in the world colliding, but I couldn't find them. They were incredibly, you know, they, there was nothing in English. I, I hadn't found any hint that they existed all those years. And I mean, this is all pre-internet, pre, pre, you know, <laughs> pre, practically pre the comics journal. And you couldn't find out about this stuff. I remember once I, when I was a bit older, I met a Dutch. He was an English professor at university, and he knew the Moomin comic strips. And I grilled him. I was like, "You're kidding! How long did she? How long with you?" Know, and she, he said, "Oh, I don't know. They're in the newspapers, and <laughs> you know, they've been going for years. And I've seen there are collections and so on, but not in English. And and there was, there was nothing in English. And and then I, when I was in my twenties, I lived in England for a while. I got to know Paul Gravett, wonderful." sort of comics historian and publisher and editor and promoter and someone gave him the only collection that had ever been published in English of the Moomin comics in about 1956 and he bless him he photocopied it for me and sent it to me and I was so excited I read it over and over again and because it was all completely out of print, no one knew about it. I had other friends who were cartoonists who were obsessed with the movements. They didn't know that it, ex- it was a comic strip. So I photocopied my photocopy and I turned it into a booklet, stapled it, turned hmm. it into a mini comic, and I gave it away to a whole lot of people. Um, and around the same time, uh, Tom Devlin was discovering the comic strip, and uh, within a few years, John and Cordley started reprinting it in English but before then honestly it was the, it was a lost holy grail of, of comics mm. and and people didn't even know it existed let alone had access to it and so if I had been able to see that when I was 15 or 14 or whatever age it was it would have absolutely blown my mind to see it would the, the specific book I'd seen back is, is the um, John and Cordley recently published a uh, for her centenary, for Toby Janssen's centenary. They published a great big box set of, the, of all of her comic strips mm-hmm. that she drew herself. If I'd, if I'd had that, 
God knows it <laughs> changed my life. Yeah. I'm I'm going to do something unusual and bundle questions five and six together. I suspect in your case there might be some overlap. You've talked about your your frustrations about certain periods of your life in comics, and your new book is about. And uh, I'll leave it to you to say just how autobiographical, but about overcoming a kind of creative malaise. Uh, questions five and six are, what's a change you'd like to see across the comics industry, and what's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? Well, I'll start with the closest I came to quitting. <laughs> um, I've actually had a series of... I've had a kind of a recurring thing where for a period of time I will be kind of allergic to comics. You know, I, I can't go to comic shops. I, I don't, I'm not able to read them. I'm certainly not able to uh, to draw them or write them. And, and it, it resurfaces now and then. The first time it really hit me was when I was living in England as a 20-something year old trying to break into the comics industry and all the kind of stress and pressure of that uh, combined with just feeling overwhelmed by trying to push my work to another level. All of that, and you know, and just relocating to another country and being homesick and stressed and broken, you know, all of that kind of gathered together and to the point where I, I was having panic attacks, attacks going into comic shops. That lasted for a while, and I, I got out of it by drawing a comic that told that story, called The Last Fox Story, which is in, that's in my collection, Incomplete Works, which comes out soon from um, Alternative Comics America. But um, but it comes back, you know, now and then that, that feeling comes back. And I, I've had an ambivalent relationship with comic shops ever since. I kind of love them, I respect them, sometimes I love going into them. But even when I'm enjoying looking at the comics, there's a little voice in the back of my head saying, get out of here, get out of here, quick. And I, so I, 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 I don't know if, I don't know if I nearly gave up comics on that first occasion. I was disorientated by it. I was trying to find my way back to doing comics. But much later when I was writing for DC Comics, I found that very difficult and the aspects of it very difficult and which anyone who reads my new book, Sam Zubel and the Magic Pen, the first few chapters will give you some sense of mm -hmm. what was going on there. And I, I really wanted to get out of writing mainstream comics, but I was too scared to because you know, we need the money and so on. Um, and then uh, when I got dropped from Batgirl, that, you know, I sort of thought, oh my God, now I kind of, we don't have the money. You know, it's happened now. So, but I, after a, a few weeks, I, I just thought, no, here's my chance. I actually just need to stop doing this. And I extricated myself from it completely. And um, that, that, uh, that was the best thing to do. I'm trying to think about whether I ever really gave I, I don't think I ever thought I would give up comics, but I did have moments during mm -hmm. all of that. Well, what, what about a change you'd like to see across the industry then? Well, in a do way... You think, well, let me ask a more specific question, yeah. since you've done 
the mainstream comic strip writing thing. You've finished with that, it's probably fair to say. Do you think the dysfunctions of mainstream comics, acknowledging that alternative cartooning has its own pathologies, but do you think <laughs> the, the dysfunctions of mainstream comics are entrenched? Do you think they will exist as long as that is a field? Yeah, let's let's focus the question on the mainstream industry because because I I do feel like these days it, we can't really talk about a comics industry anymore. It's um, I mean a good chunk of comics production is now part of the mainstream book industry. It's got nothing to do with Marvel and DC and Diamond and so on. It's 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 a, a completely separate beast now. And actually, I, you know, I don't see a lot of dysfunction there. I'm enjoying what's happening with it a great deal. Uh, but the the mainstream industry, you know, the Marvel and DC, so God, where do you start? You know, it, it got itself into such a mess in so many ways. And there was a time in the early 2000s when I felt like the biggest problem was how locked it was into the um, the direct market. And you know the the comic shop market in Diamond and so on, that there was a time when comics were, that comic book industry was about to collapse completely in the 1970s and it saved itself by jumping into the direct market, boots and all, um, and that really did save the industry, but they were jumping into something that would eventually become a trap. And the trap was that they were increasingly producing comics purely for obsessive fans and the rest of, of the world were less and less interested mm -hmm. and so by the 90s you know that, that was a real problem um, and the readership was shrinking and the stories were becoming more and more opaque and bizarre and, and meaningless to people outside those who studied them for years and years it's all changed again in a way because I feel like superheroes as a genre have now migrated from comics to movies and they're, they're a dominant genre in Hollywood which is bizarre for someone my age but has that saved the comics industry? I don't feel like it has, I feel like the, the sales of, of the superhero comics have soared you know, it's right. just that it's just that the genre is now a movie genre. And People don't move from the multiplex to the comic shop. It doesn't seem like that. Stop back at home. Yeah, I mean, I might be wrong, but, but the impression I've had is that, uh, is that that has not actually led to an explosion of people buying monthly comics titles from their local mm -hmm. comic shop. On a personal... So, you know, I, I don't really know what the answer is. In the, in the early 2000s, what I felt needed to happen is they needed to shift back into news agents and, and magazine racks. And I even had this notion that, that the way to do that was to follow the manga model and do big, fat, cheap magazines every month. So you'd have, like, an X-Men monthly, and it would, instead of being six or seven different X-Men-related monthly 22-page comics, you'd buy one... 100 page magazine that was stories all about the X-Men and the other characters a whole collection of stories and it would be cheap and it would have advertising and it would be on the newsstand you know? and, I, and that way you also would be able to try out artists without taking a big risk, you could have short stories in that issue which, which would try people out, I felt like it was a much healthier model 
to, to build, and then you'd also be doing graphic novel collections as a story concluded. None of that happened. Uh, and movies stepped up so that, so that the comics companies were really saved by being valuable intellectual property farms. Okay, I think, you know what I would most like to see, and it will never happen? Well, maybe it'll happen in my grandchildren's time. What I'd really like to see is for the older characters, like Superman, Batman, um, Wonder Woman, uh, you know, the, the really old characters, I would quite like to see them go into the public domain. Mm-hmm. I feel like if, you know, it would be nice to have them owned by the estates of the cartoonists who created them, but um, aside from that, I feel like they should be in the public domain. We should all be able to play with them. The best, the best Spider-Man com- story I've read in a very long time was by Ron Reggie Jr. You know, in Kuba Skiba, and it was hilarious and smart. Um, the best Batman comic I've ever read is by Ed Pinsent. It was a small mini-comic published in England. Let's everyone play with them. Stop them being corporate properties. And not only would that free the characters up, but it would actually um, free those companies, DC and Marvel, to start creating new properties. And ideally, to do them in a more ethical way, so that cartoonists would come to them and say, I've got a story I want to do. It's got new characters, it's a whole new thing. Um, And DC and Marvel would become publishers, not just intellectual property farms that, that, that keep holding on to these ancient, ancient bloody brands. You know, Superman's just a brand. He's a corporate brand now. And I feel like that telling stories about those characters over and over and over again in that strange corporate environment, it just means they, they devour those characters. They just endlessly devour them and regurgitate them and devour them again. Rather than creating anything genuinely new, interesting or relevant. So I think, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would throw those characters into the public domain. Let me ask question seven now. What's the best advice you've heard about making comics? Mm, these are great questions. Oh, you're very <laughs> kind. Yeah. Great, which makes them sometimes difficult to answer. <laughs> um, well, let me think about a few things I've heard. I will tell you the best piece of advice I ever was given about writing mainstream comics for DC was something Ed Brubaker told me, and he said... You have to be prepared to fight for your vision. And that was extremely good advice, um, which I didn't really follow. <laughs> and therein hangs a tale. But, uh, but I think that's very good advice if you're working for a big corporation. You have to be prepared to walk away and stand your ground. And the other part of that is you need to prepare a vision before you go into it. Because my problem was that I didn't really have a clear vision when I was writing superheroes because I just wasn't that interested in them. But I, what I should have done is taken the time to work out my vision and then go into it and then be prepared to fight for it. Um, of course, most young freelancers are too scared to do that because they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to piss people off. But if you go into it scared, you really will get eaten up. So that was very good advice. But in general, draw a lot. Mm-hmm. And draw comics a lot. And I think 
there have been a couple of older cartoonists who've basically said to me at times variations on comics is not actually the most important thing in your life and I think there's a lot of sense in that um, you know I've got kids I'm married to this wonderful woman that I have loved for 30 years um, those are actually more important to me than my comics and uh, and so when you're juggling because it's comics take so long to take so much time it's so difficult when I'm juggling that um, there are times when I have to say to myself you know if I don't get this comic finished no one's going to die I'm not a brain surgeon it's okay if I don't do this properly oh and actually here's my favourite piece of advice it's from a um, an issue of Finder by Carla Speed McNeil hmm. and in there there's a story about a, a girl who's trying to write and she's stuck she doesn't think she's good enough and her brother is exasperated and eventually says to her kid if a thing's worth doing it's worth doing badly and that's now my motto hmm. that ties directly into question number eight what's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist <clears throat> <laughs> oh, um, oh, that's a that is a tough one. I think um, maybe it's. Uh, I think probably the worst decision I made was to um, just. Yeah, oh, you know these are really tough questions. I, I have a tendency to stop. You know, when I've finished something, or if I get stuck, I have a tendency to just stop. Mm-hmm. drawing for a while and, and I, th- I overthink everything I spend months going in circles trying to work out how to solve that problem and actually that never really does solve uh-huh. it <laughs> the, 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 the only way it's solved is by doing it and even if that means I do it wrong I realise that I'm doing it wrong and I realise how to do it so just just pausing everything and stopping um, for long periods of time has never served me well. <laughs> Question number nine is what do your parents think of your work? Oh, well, my parents are uh, great. They're really into it. They're really supportive, which is really nice. I mean, my dad grew up reading comics mm-hmm. and um, when he was a teenager in the 1950s in New Zealand, it was very, very hard to get comics, especially American comics. But he managed to slowly accumulate a, a collection and he got all kinds of things. He would write to America and huh. arrange to get copies of Captain Marvel, the C.C. Beck ones, uh, EC Comics, all kinds of things. So he had this great collection. And uh, one day his dad found them and was so mortified he took them, took them to the back garden. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, burned them, the whole lot, everything. And that's, that was one of the great tragedies of my dad. <laughs> so, um, so when I was growing up, it was the opposite. Dad would bring fantastic comics home and let me have them. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up reading everything. Uh, Karl Barks, C.C. Beck, Peanuts, uh, Tintin, um, Lucky Luke, uh, Asterix, all kinds of stuff. But also he would, uh, he'd get hold of an obscure French magazine and bring it home. Uh, he was really into underground comics. So I kind of grew up reading Robert Crumb as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had this amazing education, and he's absolutely delighted that I'm doing comics. And um, we often swap comics. You know, mm. I, I, he'll visit America and he'll pick up some great graphic novel, and 
lend it to me when he comes home or sometimes give them to me um, and I do the same with him and my mother has also really been very supportive throughout she gave me my first drawing board when I was a teenager and a really wonderful she gave me my first rapidograph pens which I drew with for years and years um, and she's a poet and I, I think that she always has imparted in me the joy the pleasure of writing lyrically and and after a while you know I've been drawing comics for a long time and one day I sort of was looking at older stuff and I suddenly realized oh these aren't stories at all these are poems mm-hmm. and so so that collection Incomplete Works coming out um, in the next month or so I would I would say it's about 50% poetry in comics form that sounds really pretentious but it's just that that's how I I think sure. of them you know I'm writing them not as a narrative but as a a poem and she loves that you know I mean she's her, her own poetry is wonderful and I, I feel like that's when we talk about my comics it's often on that form. Mm-hmm. yeah so they're, they're fabulous they're really great and, and um, I have a stepmother as well who, who made a documentary about she's a filmmaker and she made a documentary about New Zealand comics and, oh cool so you know they're all they're all really into it mm-hmm. yeah. alright question number 10 our final question the dishwasher you bought with your bad girl money has broken irreparably. As a consequence, you've been assigned to write and illustrate Garfield. You're familiar with Garfield? <laughs> <laughs> but you can alter one aspect of the strip. So what do you change? Take out Garfield, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that's not original, <laughs> but Garfield without Garfield is one of the great, great creations <laughs> yeah, it has to be done <laughs> alright well we'll end on that thank you so much for talking to me thank you